In today's episode, we're going deep inside the mind of your customers to study consumer psychology principles. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the best practices and principles that they've learned throughout their career that have led them to success? Then we take all those things, we apply them to the world of sports and entertainment and other brands that are trying to turn their customers or their employees into fans. Now, today we are sitting down with Phil Agnew. So who is Phil? Well, first and foremost, Phil is the founder and host of the Nudge podcast. And it's a consumer psychology podcast where um, they, they listen to and have researchers, authors, pioneers in behavioral science. They have them on their show. And then they unpack kind of these small nudges that you can use to improve your work. Um, now, on the show, Phil shares tips and tricks to attract and boost your marketing strategy to grow your brand and to create better products. Um, and so on today's episode with Phil, we are going to unpack a ton of different consumer psychology principles that you can use in your organization to help turn your customers into fans. Um, now, a little bit more on Phil's chops and his background. Uh, this is the Nudge podcast for Phil. Uh, it's kind of a side hustle, if you will. Uh, he's a senior product marketing manager at Buffer, uh, an incredible digital marketing tool. Uh, before that, he was a senior product marketer at Hotjar, which is a, an incredible tool that we use here uh, at Engagement, where you can literally see heat maps of how people are using your website, where their cursors are going. Um, and that, I think, in addition to his time spent at Brandwatch, his past experience gives him a lot of insight into how to actually apply these consumer marketing principles uh, and these consumer psychology principles, if you will, so that they're not just theories. They're things that you can use every single day in your business. So without further ado, let's jump into this chock full of knowledge episode with Phil Ag. Phil. Welcome to the show. Hey, David. Thanks so much for having me. I am pumped to have you on the other side of the mic. Uh, normally, you've got your own show uh, called The Nudge Podcast, and it is pretty incredible. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that show is. We're going to start right off the bat with some cross-promotion. <laughs> oh, cheers, David. Yeah, Nudge is, Nudge is um, often the UK's number one marketing show, often it's top of the charts there, which is brilliant because it's quite specialist. It's all about consumer psychology. So I'm a marketer myself. I really struggled with marketing when I first became a marketer until I discovered consumer psychology and behavioral science. And basically, I've taught myself over the past five years all of these principles that people have to make decisions. And I apply them to marketing to basically improve my work. Um, so on the show, I share a lot of those principles, everything from distinctiveness, social proof, primacy effect, framing, break them down and help people understand them and then also apply it to marketing. So if you listen, you'll hear folks like Rory Sutherland, Dan Pink, Richard Schotten really break down and explain how marketing can be improved with psychology. And that's what I do on the show. Yeah. And you've got some pretty great guests coming up. Uh, so who, who have you got uh, kind of in the pipeline that people can look Ooh. forward to if you were we're recruiting new listeners over to your show <laughs> um so caitlin borgoyne is coming on i know she's been on your show already she's doing another episode of me on the barnum effect which would be very exciting um i've got the brilliant new york times best-selling author dan pink doing a whole host of shows one on mastering mastering persuasion will be very very interesting um and i'm also doing some of my own shows so there's going to be a show where i analyze steve jobs persuasion techniques and break down how steve jobs was an incredible persuader but not also a persuader but a, a, a bit of a manipulator as well and how he really manipulated people by using some of these principles so yeah if you tune into nudge you'll hear some of those episodes in the future can't wait we are going to jump into those um for this episode i really want to dive into some of the uh most effective kind of consumer psychology principles uh or psychology principles that we can then apply to marketing uh, again, especially for our listeners where they are primarily senior leaders in sports and entertainment, 
Uh, I think a lot of what we cover here is going to help them get into the minds of their target audience and better sell their services, events, products into them. Um, so let's get started. And maybe a good framework for us to approach this is you've got a course on the science of marketing, and it really breaks down some of the psychology principles behind awareness, uh, consideration, acquisition, retention. Can you give us a brief overview of the concepts that are in the course? And then maybe let's pick a few and we can yeah. go deep dive into them. Awesome. Yeah. So one of the things I struggled when I started to learn about consumer psychology and behavioral science was there's like, there's hundreds of principles. And this isn't a surprise because we've been studying how the human mind works for a hundred years. We've been debating how the human mind works for 2000 years. So it's not a surprise that there's a lot of principles out there. Um, but what I struggled with as a marketer is, okay, which principle do I apply to my marketing at what stage? So I broke down the marketing funnel, basically awareness, consideration, acquisition, retention. And in each part of those funnels, I've suggested the psychology principles that are best for that part of the funnel. So starting with awareness, you'll learn about stuff like distinctiveness and system one, or two, one and two. In consideration, you might hear about social proof and framing. In acquisition, you might hear about scarcity and anchoring. And then in retention, you might hear about the power of reciprocity. Um, so what, what you'll learn if you do that course, and hopefully what we'll talk about today, is how you can apply these principles, what these principles are, but also when to apply them, because that's the big one as well. You know, if you, as we can have choice paradox and have too many things to choose from. So having a bit of a framework to follow just helps you understand when to apply each of these principles. I love it. Well, maybe we start by just kind of picking one principle in each of those uh, awareness, mm. consideration, acquisition, retention. Um, now I, I, I'm tempted to really dive into kind of consideration and acquisition and retention and almost skip awareness because of our, a lot, a lot of our clients, but I don't want to do that. I, I want to maybe let's hit one of one principle in each bucket. Um, so maybe let's start with awareness, like your favorite, uh, or, or most effective consumer psychology principle that you feel like marketers really need to know today in awareness. Yeah. Yeah, I think marketers struggle a lot with awareness. I think if you look at most marketing, you will see a sea of sameness. You will see adverts which look identical. You will see websites which look identical. You know, you go to most SaaS websites, they've got a cartoon character pointing at where you want to click. You go to, you look at a watch advert and you will literally see a actor holding the watch or wearing the watch and that watch will be set to 10 minutes past 10 in every single one of those ads <laughs> we are um as marketers we copy one another a lot and that's that's sensible like we don't want to lose our jobs we don't want to take too many risks so we copy and that's why most ads look the same and every watch is set to 10 past 10 in watch adverts but what the science tells us if we analyze it is that distinctiveness standing out can be really beneficial to recall and really beneficial to awareness so this goes right back to something called the Hedwig von the, the von Resteroff effect which was found by Hedwig von Resteroff in the 1930s she was a Berlin psychologist and what she did is she gave participants these um, combination of letters that they had to remember so w-o-r-a-d-t all these different combinations of letters and you had to remember as many as you could but within that line of letters um, there would be three numbers that you had to remember as well now there's no reason that numbers are more memorable than letters but in this test, people were 30 times more likely to remember those numbers. Why? Because they were distinct. They stood out compared to the letters. Um, and this has been followed up with by Richard Shotton. He ran the exact same test today. So it's not just something that was uh, happening 30 years ago. It's ha still happening today to the same degree. Few people are 30 times more, member, uh, more likely to remember distinct assets. Now, why is this important? Here's a sports example for you. So as marketers, we copy one another. And this is especially prevalent in the Premier League in um, the uk so the football premier league soccer premier league if you look at the sponsorships for the premier league it's all similar brands brands like heineken carling um sh the shirt sponsors are almost all gambling firms the side shirt sponsors are almost all cryptocurrency firms it's incredible the amount of copying and what richard shotton did is he applied this principle to marketing he showed consumers 10 brands all from the same category but one of the brands would be from a different category. So for example, you would see a load of automotive brands, Ford, Hyundai, Toyota, but then you would see one fast food brand like Burger King. And then he would switch it as well. So it was fast food brands and then one automotive brand. He found that the distinct brand in the category was four times more memorable. 
Now apply this to stuff like sponsorship and you realize copying your competitors, being a lager brand and going and sponsoring the football might be a bad decision because your competitors are already there. You'll blend in, you won't be distinct. And when you stand out, you're more likely to get recall. A couple of examples of that, very basic examples, bins in Copenhagen. <laughs> Copenhagen was struggling with garbage. Too many people were littering. They did something really simple. They painted their bins neon. They stood out. More people put stuff in the bin. Same can be shared with uh, letters in Ireland. So in Ireland, people weren't answering letters from inland revenue. They put a big stamp on it to make it stand out. They're more likely to be opened and recalled. And there's even examples, there's plenty of examples from the world of advertising as well. But distinctiveness is really important. You've got to understand what your competitors are doing. You've got to understand how they're advertising. And if you're just copying, you're not going to be remembered and you're not going to be recalled. Yeah, that that's such so many good examples in there. Um, I mean, the one that comes to mind for me is a guy that we've had on the show who actually would be interesting to be on the, your show because I think you could apply mm -hmm. a lot of what he does. And he probably has no idea that there's like consumer psychology uh, behind it or human psychology behind it. Uh, but it's a guy named Jesse Cole. So he owns a, a baseball team here called the Savannah Bananas. And we pretty much hype them up. I don't know, every third show. Uh, there's some example that he comes in. So what basically kids will play college, college baseball. They'll come during the summer and train with him. So it's a, I mean, it's, it is less than the minor leagues and think of it as like a seventh, I don't know, maybe a seventh league, like English football club, basically. Um, and they have more followers on TikTok than every single, single major league baseball team. I think they might have more than every single pro sports team in America because they just do ridiculous things that stand out. He'll, he's never caught seen on camera or anywhere, not in a yellow tuxedo. Um, <laughs> and, and he has a whole book. His first book is like on basically like how to stand out. Uh, and so they do a lot of things and I think they've gotten a lot of traction and they, now they have, you know, they have a 50,000 person wait list for season tickets. And then they literally wow. are a summer college baseball team. Um, so yeah. anyway, Wow. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you another example. Okay, go, go. So you don't always have to wear yellow tuxedos if that's don't have that as your takeaway. Standing out really works. There's a there's a British football club in the lower leagues, so in League Two, a club called Forest Green Rovers, standard club. Like wouldn't be wouldn't be stand out, wouldn't be memorable if it just played the normal game. But it decided to stake a stand and be distinct. And what it does is it offers it's a completely green club. So it is according to FIFA, the first green club has um solar panels on the roof of the stadium serves a full vegan menu to all of the staff all of the players and all of the fans um you have to use a sustainable travel to get there the pitch is not using like it's using these fertilizers which are really good for environment yada 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 you get it and because they took that stand because they stood out this club gets the highest it gets a higher percentage of the people who live in the city going to the games than any other club in league two and i think any other club in league one has a huge following on social media and this is all from a club which a couple of years ago was was tiny was was minuscule and they get a load of very high value sponsorships from brands who are in a similar category so standing out being distinct it can help in loads of ways. You don't just have to wear a yellow tuxedo. You can just take a stand on something else. I love it. So many ways to be distinctive and help generate awareness for your brand product services. Um, well, let's move to consideration. Uh, which favorite consumer or most effective uh, consumer psychology principle under consideration? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of social proof. Now, social proof is the idea that we follow the actions of others. This is an evolutionary idea. So as cavemen, if we saw people running out of a cave, we wouldn't go in that cave. We'd probably run away with them. And that's smart. It's helped us survive. It's helped us evolve. And today, that means if you're walking past a shop window and people are looking in the shop window, you will do the same thing because of social proof. We follow the actions of others. Um, this has been showcased in lots of examples. Probably the most famous is Robert Cialdini example who's a researcher in Arizona University and he wanted more people to reuse their towels in hotels room hotel rooms and he put down two messages in the room right to try and get people to reuse their towel now one is the classic message that we all think would work for marketers so it says help us save the environment reuse your towel that's the one every marketer would say that will work his other message was pure social proof it just said people in this hotel reuse their towels. Most people in this hotel reuse their towels. Turns out that message 
I think the, the amount of people who reuse their towels with the environmental message was about 37%. When he used the social mess, proof message, it was about 45%. So it massively increases the likelihood of people to consider taking action, which is why social proof is so important. You can apply this directly to sales as well. So Richard Shotton, who I mentioned earlier, he went into a pub in the UK. He asked the barman, which of your beers is best selling? said oh it's this local ale london london pride is what it's called the local ale um and um, he said cool can i just put a sign on this ale for a week which says most popular so classic very standard social proof he did that sales went up i think for that beer by four times in the week following but sales of other beers didn't drop so it showcases that if you highlight what people are doing you're you're more likely to people to consider taking action and actually taking action as well so there's heaps of wonderful examples about social proof yeah, I mean, key, key ones that I love are like, there's so many cool social proof website plugins as well. I mean, and th this almost goes into acquisition. And I, I think social proof kind of helps on on the acquisition side of things, right? Where it's like, uh, I mean, basically saying there are other people on this page, they've mm -hmm. got other people have the ticket or whatever it is in the checkout cart. Um, anything that basically shows other people are doing this is huge. It's why I think most more teams should publish and make public their season ticket retention numbers, right? If you've got a 90 plus retention renewal rate, push that out there. Let people know that, hey, you're going to be, you're going to be in the very small minority if you're not renewing your tickets. Um, but I, I think, again, people overlook a lot of these psychology principles. Yeah. Well, maybe let's go to, maybe let's go to acquisition here uh, mm. from consideration into acquisition, uh, from social proof and consideration into what is your favorite principle and acquisition yeah i mean you sort of were hitting on hitting on it in the end there because there's overlaps with these so social proof obviously encourages people to do stuff but you're also mentioning scarcity and scarcity is the idea that we value scarce resource resources again classic you know evolutionary trait we've we've developed over time to to, to want scarce resources when the concord uh, announced that it would stop flying and i think 12 months between london and new york the sales for the remaining tickets went through the roof they almost sold out within minutes nothing changed about the service nothing changed about the price all that changed was it became a scarce resource and people take action on scarce resources and there's heaps of examples that showcase how this can benefit your brand so there's, there's the classic stuff of saying you know five more days to renew your season ticket if you are a sports sports club that will encourage people to take action or say there's a certain amount of seats left to be sold that will encourage people to take action um, but there's more interesting ways you can use scarcity as well like one of my favorite examples so scarcity you can you can create scarcity now there are ethical things behind this where you shouldn't you shouldn't create scarcity out of nothing but you can still create scarcity by doing completely ethical things. So uh, one of my favorite examples was from a US supermarket and they were encouraging people to uh, buy soup. <laughs> this is, so, so, so their, their control message was classic, just marketing. It just said, buy cans of soup. And turns out when people saw that message, they did buy soup. They bought about, I think it was two cans per person, per person who bought a can of soup. So, you know, classic, like, okay, marketing does work to some extent. Like if you tell people to buy soup, people actually buy soup. But you can add a bit of scarcity by just creating it yourself. So they then changed it and said, oh, cans of soup are limited to 12 cans per customer now this is ridiculous because nobody was buying 12 cans of soup before people were buying on average two maybe max five they just said oh by the way you know limited to 12 per customer don't buy more than that and that creates a bit of scarcity it's like oh god this is gonna this is gonna run out and turns out once they put that message up people were on average buying three and a half cans of soup versus two cans of soup and you might say, oh, whatever, Phil, this is soup. This is supermarkets. It doesn't, doesn't work for me in the ad game or in marketing. But KFC, KFC, who have a billion dollar marketing budget, did the exact same test. They um, wanted people to buy this new deal that they were running in Australia. They were offering chips for a dollar in Australia. It's a pretty good deal. Um, and they wanted to find out what was the very best message they could create. So they created 90 different versions of the message. They got the best copywriters of uh, KFC to write all of these different versions. They were wonderfully creative stuff, like the Colonel has never been so generous from Perth to Brisbane and they loved Aus uh, Australia around all this wonderful stuff, you know, fresh, crispy, all that stuff. Um, and they tested these 90 messages 
um, on Facebook. So they ran these side-by-side A slash B slash C tests side-by-side to see which message got the most clicks and encouraged people to go and make the most delivery orders. The message that was by far the most effective was simple scarcity. It said, chips for a dollar, limited to four per customer. That was the message that got people to buy. And I think that showcases the power of scarcity in acquisition. So when we think about, I guess when I'm thinking about scarcity, the limited to a number, is that, I guess that's more scarcity. My brain immediately went towards like a counter, right? So there's only, there's only a thousand tickets or there's only a thousand cans of soup and showing like a live counter of how many are being purchased. That is that scarcity as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, like there are lateral ways you can apply scarcity. So scarcity could be 500 seats available, 10 remaining. Scarcity could be um, you're you're limited to buying four cans. Now there's a bit of anchoring there because you're anchored to a high number, but it's also scarce as well. It's like <clears throat> if I'm limited to buying four chips, this must be a very high value resource. It must be because people are buying so many and that it's running out. Another example of scarcity, you know, if you go to a cafe and you see um, two sort of glass jars one is filled with a whole full jar of cookies one is filled with a jar of cookies which there's only two left and you know that there's only two left because people are buying them you'll happily pay more for the jar of cookies that is that is scarce so there's lots of lateral ways you can apply this it's not just as simple as saying you know 10 remaining whatever it is fascinating yeah anybody doubting the power of scarcity can just think back to the pandemic when it first hit and everybody was buying so much toilet paper and paper towels. And you're like, you already have 100 rolls at home. Why are you getting more? Mm-hmm. And it's just because you saw like none on the shelves, right? Uh, and it was this thing of, but maybe they'll run out. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. And more lateral ways you can apply it as well, just because it's a great sports example. There's um, a competition every Christmas in the UK, which is a darts. This is going to be so over the head of your listeners in, in America. It's a darts competition. It's called the World Darts Championship. Us Brits, we love it. We love the darts. And they use scarcity really well. So they sell their tickets online. They sell out very quickly. Um, but what they do to enhance scarcity is they sell the tickets in like four buckets So members get to buy first and there's a limited amount. So you rush on to buy and they quickly sell out. And then there's these priority members who get to, um, sorry, not priority members, like sub members who get to go buy on. And then there's email subscribers and then general public. And what that's creating is four occasions of scarcity. When you're first buying the tickets, there are loads of tickets remaining. They're just only letting you buy the first 10%. Then they're letting you buy the next 20%, the next 20%. And by creating that faux scarcity, you're massively increasing the number of people who will buy tickets. This stuff sells out. People are buying tickets to go watch the darts on Christmas Eve at like 7 p.m. It's like, have you not got anything better to do? And it's like, oh, the reason is, well, a lot of it is down to scarcity. That's that's a super interesting tactic where they're basically taking up a, a chunk of tickets, one big group of ticket, and then creating four different artificial chunks of tickets and then saying, oh, there's only so many left. And it's in that chunk, but they could wait because they're also probably a, an email subscriber to get that next chunk, but they it's a scarcity and so they, they go after it. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's so cool. Yeah, and it just shows, you know, the imaginative ways you can you can leverage this stuff to to get people to take action. I love it. We could we could go for hours on this. Um, all right, let's go into retention. <laughs> One of your favorite from retention. Yeah, reciprocity. So. Uh, reciprocity this is one of robert cialdini's seven key influences so if you read his book influence he'll talk about reciprocity a lot and he'll share a, a brilliant study which was conducted in well it was conducted in a pretend art gallery back in the 70s and in the art gallery the participant who was a real person would walk in and he would be asked or she would be asked to rate the art pieces alongside another participant now the twist is the other participant in there with you is actually a, it's actually a researcher so they're pretending to be a participant so it's all a bit of a setup and and spoiler it's got nothing to do with rating the art they're just there to to pretend to rate it and then halfway through the experiment the fellow participant who's who's actually a researcher uh, they'll walk out um, and they'll buy themselves a coke and in one of the scenarios they'll come back with the coke and just drink it themselves in another scenario they'll come back with two cokes and say oh it was two for one or something do you want a coke like it's on me Um, and give it to the participant Um, and then later on in the experiment the 
fellow participant, the researcher, would ask the actual participant, oh, by the way, I'm selling these uh, charity raffle tickets for this local charity event I'm doing. Would you would you be up for buying any tickets? And the finding is that when the individual has received a gift, something nice, a can of Coke, they are, I think it's something like two or three times, or they buy two or three times more charity tickets than they do if they hadn't received the Coke. And this has been repeated and replicated dozens of times. So we are naturally inclined to reciprocate. If somebody does something nice to us, we reciprocate the favor. Now, what's interesting with reciprocacy, with reciprocation when it comes to brands is that if it feels transactional, if it feels obvious, people are less likely to take action. Um, so for example, if you give somebody a 5% discount on their coffee, or even the 10th coffee free if they're using a loyalty card, that's not as engaging. That's not as in, that's not actually uh, amplifying the feeling of reciprocity because it feels transactional. Now, one of the best things brands can do to emphasize reciprocity is use something called variable rewards. Now, it's really interesting. Variable rewards are far more motivating than consistent rewards. And this is done by studies on rats, funnily enough. Um, so rats were, um, they were told, they were, they were trained to push a button. And every time they pushed a button, the little bit of sugary water would be fed to them. And what they found was that if every time the rat pushed the button and sugary water came out, the rat would actually get disincentivized over time. They would get demotivated and they would stop pressing the button as much. They just wouldn't bother. But when the reward was variable, when sometimes sugary water came out and sometimes it didn't, the rat got hooked and couldn't stop pressing the button, would press the button far more than any other variant. And the idea here is that when your reward is variable, when it's not always there, when it's not just completely transactional, people get hooked on them. So how do you apply this as a brand? Well, pret which is a coffee brand in Europe, I think there's some in America, they don't offer a loyalty card. What they do is they just give out random free coffees to people, to customers who they think have made their day. And apparently 25% of customers of pret have received these free coffees and free gifts. So that's a great example. There's a brilliant curry house in London called Dishim. And on Monday to Thursday, they do something called the Matka. And it's this big board that they bring out and it's with a dice. And if you roll a six, so one in six chance, you get your whole meal for free. And that's, you know, that's a great example of a variable reward. You know, it's, it's not, there's no loyalty card there, but it's encouraging loyalty with a bit of reciprocity. Um, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of examples in the sports world that we could talk about as well. But reciprocity, just doing somebody a favor. And if you make it variable as well, that's going to keep your customers coming back, keep them hooked. Oh no, th those are great. The the pret manger. Uh, how do you say that? Pret manger, pret pret manger, pret manger. I haven't done. I haven't incorporated that into our. So we do like customer service trainings for these big organizations, uh, especially the sports mm -hmm. teams. Um, and that is one of the examples that I've used in the past. I haven't used it in a couple of years, um, but that example is like just such a good example of surprise and delight. Um, but as it's applied to reciprocity, it makes so much sense. Um, and I think there's a lot of like for me on on this on this specific category, especially when we talk about variable rewards within reciprocity, like the the best industry that I think does it the best is gaming, right? I mean, they mm -hmm. so many of these psychology principles, I feel like all the gaming companies like just have it down. And not 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 gambling, but like the esports. Uh, your, your Fortnites, that kind of thing, because they just know how to get people hooked. And a lot of it is using some of these things like variable rewards. If you, I feel like if you do the same thing over and over again, and you know what that expected result is, to your point, you can get bored like the rats, the, the study with the rats. Whereas if you could get a chance at some extra big thing, it's like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool thing. So like, I think what you're, what you're talking about with reciprocity here is a lot of the things that we're actually starting to apply with our clients is like, all right, how do we create a system that's, there's a process for it, like the examples that we've used here, where you can just magically make someone's moment during the course of a game, where you can surprise someone with a merchandise coupon, uh, a food coupon. And it's not, not necessarily even 15% off, but like, hey, thanks for interacting with us. Like, here's $20, go spend it at the concession stand, right? And I think like that's one of those things where the fan is going to remember that more than they will even the outcome of the game years from now because they'll they'll remember that feeling. Um, so I, I yeah. love those examples. I'm I'm a I'm a season ticket holder at the football club locally, Chelsea Football Club, which some of your your listeners might know. And they used to do, do this great variable reward. 
every single game at halftime, they would pick a random seat and it could be anywhere around the stadium. And they would say, uh, this seat has won a signed shirt from, from the, from the players. And it was great. It was so engaging. And like everybody stayed around at halftime to see what it was. It was this wonderful, very reward. And they ditched it. And I think they ditched it because too many people, it was so powerful that too many people were sitting in their seat and not going to go uh, and actually buy uh. merchandise and food and drink. So that's why they ditched it. But, you know, it's one of these great examples like, oh, you're onto something there. Just find a different way to leverage it. You know, say that everybody who has bought a drink or bought a, bought some food item in up until now is in this pool to win this this lottery um lotteries are very interesting as well I'll give you one quick more reciprocity example um in in stockholm i think it was stockholm they did this amazing experiment with speed cameras so one of the problems with speed cameras is they're not a big enough deterrent people don't always follow the rules and on average people try and go above the speed limit or at least a little bit above the speed limit and in stockholm they decided to switch it so rather than make the speed loss speed camera a fine they did the speed camera lottery and what happened is every time you went past the speed camera and you were under the speed limit you got one entry into the lottery the speed camera lottery every time you were over the speed limit so say it's 30 miles per hour and you were 30 or 31 you don't get an entry and the winner would get the money that was made from the fines that the speed camera generated so giving right back to the people proper reciprocity and it turned out that decreased speeding and kept people's going at the right speed by about 30 percent, which is better than any fine based uh, camera has ever done in the past so it's incredible how these variable rewards and and reciprocity can help in all sorts of areas not just stuff like merchandise sale but stuff as big as actually getting people to reduce uh, their speed in the cars that is wild um well these these all these principles and a ton more um are things that phil covers in his science of marketing course so if these things are interesting to you guys and you're as a marketer you're like man i want to learn more i want to figure out some more of these principles um you can go to his website which will link into the into the show notes and you can head there and check it out um for the rest of the show we've got a bunch of random questions that i want to dig into so this is going to be a little less structured um but if you're ready to go let's let's hit it phil what do you think yeah, let's do it. Yeah. All right. Um, so I mentioned this earlier. I think for a lot of big sports and entertainment brands, right? Obviously, some of your lower division brands, they are really battling with awareness. But for some of our clients, like a, a Penn State or a University of Texas football, they're not really struggling for awareness, right? So hmm. what they are just struggling with a little bit is kind of some of this lack of conversion because I think they have so many decisions to make in that fan experience, if you will. Um, so I have in here this is from, uh, I believe one of your stats here on, on average, we make 35,000 decisions per day. So the simpler a product is to purchase, the more likely we are to convert to sales. Um, and when a fan is interacting with one of these big brands, I mean, you're looking at ticket decisions, parking decisions, concessions, tailgate menus. I mean, mm -hmm. pregame events, merchandise. There's so many things that our people are trying to work through. And, and it's a big process. And sometimes it's a mental task. Uh, so what are some best practices for laying out options without overwhelming customers? And can you give us some examples of organizations who do this well? Yeah. Yeah, so I'll start with a bit of the science. So choice overlaid is is a very well known um, problem. Um, when people face too much choice, they don't act. So great study from uh, Richard Chatterway's book, The Behavioral Business. Um, they he was working with a newspaper subscriber who had, I think, a hundred different combinations of things you could subscribe to. This is like a subscription to a newspaper. So do you want sports and business, or business and tech, or business and real estate, and yada yada yada? Um, there were a hundred different combinations. He just encouraged them to reduce the combinations from a hundred to four. Conventional wisdom said it says this shouldn't work. If there are fewer choices, people should take less action. It's completely wrong. When there were fewer choices, people were something like 5%, 10% more likely to buy. Um, there's another great study from Ian Inga, who's the sort of, she's the founder of this sort of, I guess, movement. And her study was in supermarkets in America. It's very similar. There's a lot of studies done there. Um, and it was with jam sales. And on, on alternative weekends, she would sell jam. The only difference with her jam booth in the supermarket was on one weekend, it would sell 35 varieties of jam raspberry strawberry chili you know you name it and on the other uh, weekend it would sell only six varieties of jam um so a smaller choice again conventional wisdom suggests the smaller the choice the more purchasing 
um, or sorry, the bigger the choice, the more likely people are to purchase. The opposite is true. So when you reduce the choice, people are more likely to purchase. People are 30% more likely to buy when there were six varieties of jam. So and that, that study, it's been it's actually been struggled to be replicated in some scenarios in the exact scenario, but like the principle behind it is undeniably true. And so what you find when you're in a business is if you make it easier for customers, if you reduce the choice, if you re reduce the, the cognitive load that customers have to go through to make all these choices, you encourage people to take more action. The most, the biggest example of this is organ donation, funnily enough. So in Europe, organ donation in the past has typically been opt in. So people have to opt in to donate. And what you find is that when people have to opt in, about 15% of the population will typically become an organ donator, an organ donator, no one else will bother. Now, people originally thought that was because nobody wanted to be an organ donator. It wasn't. It was because of the way the choice was set up, because a few countries in Europe changed to opt out. So everybody would be automatically opted it at, into their system of organ donation, and you had to opt out to get out of it. And they found that 85% of people were signed up to be an organ donator. Only 15% actually opted out. And the UK applied this, and they went from a sort of 10% organ donation rate to a 90% organ donation rate overnight. And the same has been done with pensions. So pensions in the UK were originally opt-in. They found that again, around 20, only, well, it's probably a bit higher, 40% of people, let's say, were, um, were actually opting in to start a pension when they made it opt-out. It's now up to, I think, 95%. So a huge, much bigger number are now saving. So making a, making a decision easier is much better. Now I've got an example. I've got a personal pet peeve so as i mentioned i i'm a season ticket holder at a football club and they have just i, I buy a season ticket then and the season ticket gets me access to all of the premier league games which are the domestic league games at home for this club now with the season ticket you get priority to buy the additional games stuff like the champions league the fa cup and the league cup those games arguably even better especially the champions league games now what chelsea force us to do is to go and buy each of those tickets individually. Now, what's annoying about that is I have to get an email every time. I have to buy at the right time. I have to, like, I have to, like, there's the mental load of that. I have to make about 100 decisions over the course of the year to, to buy all those tickets. You got you to remember when that purchase time is yeah. coming. You got to set a calendar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what happens, David, is I end up not going to about 30% of those games. And, and some of that is because I can't go. Another is that because I literally forget, I literally miss the deadline. And what's silly about that is these are games that don't even sell out occasionally, these smaller games. But I know right now, as a seed ticket holder, I would happily pay for all of those tickets now and just have that. And, and like maybe I get a little discount or something, but I would happily pay for it all now because it would just mean I could make one decision. They don't give me the ability to do that. So what they, I'm sure these clubs, and this is maybe less of a big deal for the really big clubs that are guaranteed to get seats sold. I mean, even Chelsea doesn't fill out their allocation, so it is still important for them, but this is massively important for smaller organizations. And, you know, the same can be said for food purchases as well. It's crazy that I can't buy a bundle. I'm paying all this up, money up, up front. Why can't I buy a bundle which allows me to get a meal and a drink for the 10 games that I'm going to and just have that included in the cost, offer me a little discount. But it means that, you know, I don't I only make that decision once. And on average, you'd massively increase the, the spend per customer. So there are all these smart ways you can make it easier. You can do that opt-in rather than opt-out. And yeah. you can massively increase the amount. The, the season ticket one is just baffling to me. I think from from talking and, and being in depth, working side by side with a lot of teams, I think there is this thought around, um, well, we, uh, we don't want, what if our fans don't want that? We don't want to just like force them into that decision. And to your point around the organ donation, I mean, most of them will opt in for that. Most of them will opt in for an automatic renewal. And I know for a lot of our clients, that is one of the most difficult times of the year is this season ticket renewal process. You got to hire extra staff, phone lines are waiting for three hours and it's, it's not a good process that everybody's stressed out on. I'm like, just make it all auto renew. And, and there's a resistance mm -hmm. to change, which is a whole nother topic. We could do a whole nother podcast on that. There's this resistance to change to flip that around. And I'm like, guys, just make it auto renew, especially because your renewal is 95%. It'll cut your workload so mm -hmm. much and it'll be more beneficial to the fans. Everybody will enjoy it more. So that's a prime example of applying yeah. that consumer psychology. Uh, I, I love that example. 
Um, all right. Well, let's let's kind of move on. I mean, one of the other psychological phenomenon that you've studied is the pratfall effect. And I love this one. Um, so tell us a little bit about what the pratfall effect is um, and and kind of why it works. Yeah. So the pratfall effect, it was discovered by a researcher called Elliot Aronson back in the 80s. And what the researcher did is he paid act an actor to answer a bunch of quiz questions correctly. So the actor looked very successful. He recorded the actor doing these quiz questions and he would show that video to a group of participants and ask the participants how likable is this person and discovered some really interesting things one if someone is competent so if they get more questions right actually more likable so a bias that i don't particularly like as a person who doesn't consider themselves too competent i wish that wasn't true but people who are competent are considered more likable but he made one variant of this study where the actor at the end of answering a lot of questions correctly spilled a cup of coffee down himself, made a bit of a fool of himself. And in that scenario, the amount of people who said they rated that person as likable massively jumped. It increased, I think, twofold. Um, and it showcased that if you have a weakness and you're competent, you're seen as really likable and, and a really, you know, you're, you're, you're a really wonderful person. Interestingly, if you're not competent, so if the actor gets most of the questions wrong and spills coffee down themselves, it decreases their likability. So it's important to have this competentness and then this sharing this flaw. And this has been applied to job applications. So Jo Sylvester at Swansea University in Wales, she um, sent thousands of job resumes off to people and, and ended up securing a number of interviews, which our researchers went to. And the researchers would all share the same level of skill, the same experience. So you had this sort of baseline where everybody was going in and basically saying, I've got the same level of experience. However, in some of the scenarios, people would declare a weakness in their job interview. So they would say, I'm great at this. I'm great at this. I'm great in this. By the way, I'm awful at this. And in other scenarios, they would only declare strengths. I'm great at this. I'm great at this. I'm great at this. And I'm great at this. Now, conventional wisdom suggests probably we shouldn't declare a weakness. We shouldn't be telling people in an interview what we're not good at voluntarily. But Joe's research discovered that the opposite is true. If you declare a weakness, you are more likely to get a job than people who don't. Now, again, conventional wisdom suggests this shouldn't work. Why would somebody hire someone who declares a weakness versus someone who doesn't? Well, it's all back to this likability. We're more likely we like someone, we're more likely to give them a job. Again, the same is true though. If you don't, if you don't seem to have a lot of experience and you're then declaring weaknesses, you're less likely to get a job. Now, brands can apply this. Now, some brands famously apply this. They flaunt their flaws. So for Marmite, which is a yeast extract uh, spread in the UK, it's, they famously play on the idea that some people don't like it because it's a very strong flavor. And their slogan is, you'll either love it or you'll hate it. Listerine famously said it tastes lousy but it makes my breath smell good so highlighting these flaws there's a, a a snow resort i think based in the states called snowbird or something like that and they did a two-page spread and it said and the two-page spread was a picture of their snow resort and it just had a one-star review and the one-star review said um too difficult too, the slopes were too advanced, wouldn't go back again, highlighting a flaw, which is also showcasing something positive to other people. So highlighting your flaws is this really interesting tactic because one, the evidence suggests that it increased your likability, but two, so few brands and so few companies do it because we're so likely to copy our competitors because we're so scared, we're risk averse and we don't want to do something that will get ourselves fired, suggesting that we should do a tactic or we should do a campaign which showcases a weakness is, is something that very few brands will ever do. Yet the brands that do have a lot of success in it. Marmite have been running that slogan for about 50 years. Avis have been saying we're second so we will try harder for about 50 years. It's no surprise that these brands that flaunt their flaws have stuck with these slogans because they work. It's so interesting. I mean, we so we do a lot of work with college sports brands specifically, and and they're usually part of, even though they have hundred thousand seat stadiums and are, are much bigger than a lot of, um, from from a fan base perspective, they're massive, uh, and their fans are are rabid and passionate. But they're usually part of a larger university, and because of that, there's this culture of just very much we can't admit flaws, and it has to be perfect, yeah. and. But what it does to your point, and, and I'm curious as to your take on this is, do you, is this part of why you think so many well-performing, so much well-performing content now is on an iPhone? 
that is kind of user generated that like it might have the messy background in it, but the content in front of the camera is, is good. I mean, does that, do you think that plays a role into this? Like I, I know a lot of times from a marketing perspective, like we see these iPhone videos and UGC type videos perform better than these really high production value videos that are doing the same kind of content. Do you think that applies mm. here? I think there's something in there. I think there's a bit of reactance, which is people don't like listening to authority. So hearing something from a, a fellow fan is just more engaging. There's a bit of social proof and a bit of influence in there as well. Um, there's a study by Adam Ferrier who um, analyzed cookies. Cookies come up a lot. Um, and one cookie was perfectly round. The other had this jagged edge. So it was imperfect. People prefer the imperfect version. They're 66% more likely to prefer the imperfect version, which I think speaks to your you know, video example of like, you're probably more likely to prefer something slightly imperfect. There's something that draws your attention. Um, can I swear on the show or, or, or am I not allowed to? I can. Okay. Um, you can bleep it if you need to. But Guinness is an interesting example in the UK. In the UK, Guinness is a, a beer in, the UK, in, in Ireland, I should say. It's an Irish beer. Um, very popular its uk social account only has fifteen thousand followers so very few um there's, there's another account which is called shit london guinness has one hundred and fifty thousand followers so 10 times the amount of followers why because people prefer imperfection people like negativity this is just pictures of poorly porn guinness people love it um so people like imperfection um if i was a sports brand if i was let's say i'm um I'm working in marketing for a, a mid-sized, smaller club that's trying to get people to go to games. I would be very inspired by what the Helsinki Tourism brand did. So the Helsinki Tourism brand did this wonderful advert. And it was just this big billboard that you saw when you exited the airport in Helsinki. And it was only up for one month, the month of November. And the advert said, visiting Helsinki in November, gee, you're a real badass or something like that. Something like that. It's not exactly those words, but it was along those lines, like visiting Helsinki in, 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 in November, you know, that takes some guts. Well done. So it's highlighting this flaw, but in a way which creates a lot of positivity and engagement. And I think sports brands could do this. You know, there's a famous club in the UK called Stoke, this football club. And it's famous because it's really windy. Britannia Stadium is where they play. It's really windy. It's really difficult to get to. It's really, it's like, but it's got this good atmosphere and for me, on the outside of their stands, they should they should put a big sign up on a cold and wet Wednesday night, which says "Visiting Stoke on a cold and wet Wednesday night." Good on you! Like you're 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 clearly a hardcore fan. I think if you did a campaign around that, if you did a campaign around a floor, which might highlight an actual strength for the fan, so suggesting you know if you're hard enough, if you're if you're gutsy enough to support this club at this time, wow, you must be a loyal fan. That would be so compelling compared to just saying our oh, tickets on sale half price, yeah. which nobody listens yeah. to. I think saying something like that would really get people excited. I love it. Um, all right, well let's let's uh, let's move into just kind of the end of the episode here. I, these are some questions that we we usually put in here. So I'd love to hear from you. Like, what is an opinion in this area uh, of kind of consumer psychology that you just kind of disagree with? Maybe it's a hot take that a lot of other people subscribe to that you're like, I don't agree with that. It might not be a study, but it might be an approach to using studies. Mm. Um, so there's some very important stuff. There's a the replication crisis, which is happening. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. So um, some studies, a lot of studies that were produced sort of back in the early 2000s, and a lot of them were cited in books like Thinking Fast and Slow and Influence and others. A lot of them haven't been replicated. Mainly they are around the topic of priming. So the idea that if you if a participant reads words which relate to being old, like Florida and pension and care home, they walk slower down the hall when they leave the the research room. Um, and the idea that if you go to a website and it's got sort of green money floating in the background people are more likely to spend more this idea that like there's really subtle primes that you can do to influence behavior this sort of mind um reading type of stuff a lot of that hasn't been proven so i would advise people if they're ever reading about priming to take it with a pinch of salt even daniel kahneman the Nobel prize winner who run think wrote thinking fast and slow he's addressed it and is well aware of it and knows that a lot of the evidence that he shared around priming is is wrong that doesn't but the other thing I'd say is that definitely doesn't mean you should discount 
the rest of behavioral science um, just because there are some studies which are disproven. If anything, that showcases that the rest of behavioral science is reliable, right? If there's a field of evidence in consumer psychology, if there's fields of evidence that people are disagreeing with, that means they can't disagree with the other stuff. So I think it's a well worth thing to study compared to more general things like the general branding or marketing sort of stuff, things you could look at when nobody's countering anything because there's no factual evidence to counter on. Um, I would say having a look at that. So yeah, just be wary of priming would be would be one bit of advice that I'd give. I love it. Um, well, any Phil, any last words of advice for our listeners here? Any, any last words of advice? Um, yeah, I think, look, we often spend, we spend 100% of our time at work thinking about the brand that we are marketing, thinking about the brand that we're selling, thinking about the thing that we're doing. And we often assume that our consumers, our users, the people who use our product are doing the same thing. They're not. They are 100% not. They've, they're living their own life. And what you'll find is, you'll often find that people are adverse to trying some things which are perhaps risky or left field because they assume that, oh my God, it might mean that our customers never come back, that they read this one thing and they think, oh, that's awful and they go away. People don't act that way. You can take far bigger risks than you probably expect because your brand is not this be all and end all. It's not something that's considered. And and to be honest, look at the brands that have taken the biggest risks. It's not brands that are small. It's brands like Apple, Amazon, Netflix. And the reason that they're so big is because they've taken those risks in the first place. So I'd definitely encourage people to, to take risks, to study consumer psychology, to start testing this stuff, applying it. It's really easy to do. In the show, I showcase how you can test it at ease and at scale um, and try it for yourself and see if it works for you. I love it. That's a great piece of advice. And I will probably end up clipping that one of one of many clips that we'll have from this uh, incredible episode with you. Um, Phil, anything that you want to plug? Where can people reach you? Um, give us some some avenues for our cuts, our, our consumers, our listeners to be able to follow you and, and engage with you. Oh, cheers, David. Well, wherever you listen to your podcasts, go and search for Nudge. It's called Nudge and it's Dash Marketing Science Simplified. The logo is this lovely orange, ready, red logo. So if you see that, you're in the right place. Um, so please go and give that, just give that one listen and, and, and let me know what you think. Follow me on social. I, I'd love to, uh, to chat with you. I'm Phil Agnew. So P-H-I-L-L-A-G-N-E-W. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Reach out to me there. I post uh, three marketing tips a week um on both of those channels so if you want those tips those psychological tips you can get them there i also have a newsletter so if you go to my website nudgepodcast.com hit newsletter you'll get a tip every week so it's just like the stuff i've been sharing today all these different tips you get it in your inbox and you can try it out yourself um so do that and then david you mentioned it at the start but i do have a course it's the science of marketing course if you're at all interested in that go to nudgepodcast.com look at the menu at the top and click course and you can read all about it you can take your first two or three lessons for free um it's free to sign up as well so most of these courses cost 900 pounds bit of anchoring there 900 pounds a thousand pounds this one's completely free so it's a good deal um so yeah go and sign up for that if you're interested as well phil thanks so much for coming on the show man this has been an incredible episode and i think anybody that listened to it learned a ton so uh just encourage you if you're listening to this to share it with your friends uh and your colleagues because i know there's going to be a lot that they can gain from this episode and, and phil's knowledge as well um phil once again thanks for coming on man Till our next conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.